morning. My name's John, if you do not know my name, and uh, I uh, have the pleasure of bringing God's Word to you this morning. Thank you, Jacob, for your Bible reading, and uh, for Asha for your prayer as well. Well, we enter into 1 Thessalonians 2 uh, this morning, and uh, we read, as, as Jacob read for us, that Paul gives an account for his ministry. And uh, like he reminded the Thessalonians in chapter 1, verse 6, about how they had become imitators of him and his, his friends, uh, he continues to give instruction and reflection uh, on how he went about his ministry with these new believers. And some might suggest that Paul is giving an apologetic uh, for his ministry, that he's playing defence against those who seem to claim or who are accusing him of wrong motives and deceptive teaching. And, uh, but rather, I think it is more likely that Paul is now outlining how committed he is to these new group of believers there in Thessalonica, uh, that he's writing to encourage and to help them continue in their faith uh, while under opposition. So, with this in mind, uh, and having read our passage this morning, uh, I'd like to highlight three themes for us Uh, that emanate from our passage. First, I think there are motives to understand. Second, there is a practice to follow. And third, there is a word to welcome. A motives to understand, practice to follow and a word to welcome. And as Paul reminds the church in Thessalonica uh, of what and how he conducted himself there, Well, he gives sort of meat to the bones of his ministry for us by by helping us perhaps in how we might approach our own. So first, there are motives to understand. Daniel Pink in his book Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, outlines three main categories of human motives and drivenness. Uh, The first is uh, an aspect of biology, uh, how we are driven by our biological and survival needs. The second is through extrinsic rewards, that is rewards that are external to us. You know, things like our income and our style of living and and seeking after the external benefits while also actually avoiding punishment too. And third, there are the intrinsic rewards that... Uh, the desires to create, to learn, to, to be part of making a better world. Uh, these things come from within. And so to that point, uh, he says, human beings have an innate inner drive to be autonomous, self-determined and connected to one another. And when that drive is liberated, people achieve more and live richer lives. I'm not sure whether Paul would put it in those terms, would use this kind of modern language to describe his ministry uh, or his motives for ministry, but in these opening verses of chapter 2, he outlines for us the motives that he had in conducting his ministry uh, there in Thessalonica. And so he says, let's read those first uh, six verses. He reads, uh, he writes, sorry, for you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit uh, with you was not without result. On the contrary, 
after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness and we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Paul's ministry here in Thessalonica certainly had an effect. A couple of weeks ago we read through uh, Acts chapter 17 verses 1 to 15 which describes his time in Thessalonica uh, and, and it describes it as a rather rough one. Uh, while they were there, those who believed, uh, those, there were, oh, sorry, there were a number who believed uh, in the gospel and, and turned to follow Jesus and, and the message that Paul was preaching there. But there were also plenty who responded angrily, even violently, causing much upheaval in the city. And so, so much so that Paul and his friends were required to leave the city. And this also came on the back of their time in Philippi, uh, which we, you can read about in Acts chapter 16. And there they were beaten and imprisoned. And, uh, and Paul says here in verse 2 that they were treated outrageously. Yet despite this treatment and the consequences uh, of their time in Philippi, Paul and his friends were emboldened to continue to preach the gospel there in Thessalonica. I'm not sure about you, uh, but sometimes there are situations where it's just easier to to let it go. It's easier to to give it up. Uh, When the workplace is not a terrific place to be, when the relationship is going through a rough patch or where the healthy uh, lifestyle regime isn't meeting expectations, it's easier easier to give it up, isn't it? It's easier to, to give up. It may not be right, but it's certainly easier to do so. And the easiest thing for Paul here would have been to give up. He hadn't got a good response from the gospel. He, he, he'd been beaten and nearly killed. He'd been imprisoned, uh, all because of his preaching. It would have been easier to give it up. But rather than do that, they were emboldened. They, they, their drive to, to preach this gospel gospel to preach this good news was increased. They knew they had been approved by God and had been entrusted with this gospel, with this gift, with this message of hope. And so there is a sense of significance in their task. There is a weightiness uh, to their work. They knew that this gift of the gospel was important and it was within them and they, they had it to share the world to share to the world. It had been entrusted to them to do just that. And so they recognised that they, they were not there to please the hearers of this message, but actually they were there to please God. They were there to please God. When we fall into the trap of seeking to please people, to please others, rather than to please God, we can find ourselves in a bit of a mess. 
You see, when we believe the gospel ourselves, when we put our faith and put our trust in Christ and his work on the cross, that, that he, uh, he really becomes our, the Lord of our life. He becomes number one. And so in this act of faith, in trusting in God and trusting in Christ, we recognise that we have sinned, that we've fallen short of God's standards but that we, we, we recognise we can't do it all. And we understand that God, through his grace, gives us grace because that is what we need. And that, 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 that we can't get out of our own mess, but that, that through God's grace we find ourselves uh, under him and, and seeking, therefore, to please him. Because having been given the grace of God, then our, our hearts and our minds point towards pleasing God. Our driving motivation of our hearts and our lives are turned towards pleasing God. And this is the case that we can read about and see through Scripture. For pleasing God is, is a motivation, a key motivation for, for us as followers of God. 1 Samuel 15, 22, pleasing God, pleasing God becomes a matter of obedience. It writes, then Samuel said, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than fat of rams. And in Psalm 147, 11, pleasing God is a matter of of fearing the Lord, of revering him. The Lord values those who fear him, those who put their hope in his faithful love. And Romans 8, 6 to 8, is where pleasing God is a matter of having transformed hearts through the Spirit. Paul writes, Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When we place the pleasing of others over pleasing God, then we are falling into the trap of placing our approval of others over God and not recognising the approval that we already have from God through Christ. When we place pleasing others over pleasing God, we fail to recognise the approval that God has already given us through Christ Jesus. And so with this motive to please God, Paul continues to preach, despite opposition, despite the possibility of imprisonment, despite the possibility of more violence, he reminds the Thessalonians that his preaching was done not with flattering speech, not with greedy motives, no intent of gaining glory for himself. It was all about pleasing God. R.C. Sproul, in his book, Pleasing God, ironically enough, uh, says this, what higher approval could a person enjoy than to know that what he or she has done is pleasing to God. And there we find a motive to understand. Paul 
Paul's motive, seeking to please God during his time in Thessalonica. Second, we also find a, or there is, a practice to follow in verses 7 to 12. In 1904, uh, the Presbyterian Women's Missionary Union produced a cookbook. And this cookbook is still found in print today. In fact, I have it on my shelf and it is my go-to cookbook for when I want to make some simple yet tasty banana bread. And so it outlines the ingredients that I need, very simply. It then outlines how to put those ingredients together in order to produce this banana bread. Very tasty. I'm just telling you, I can do a decent banana bread off the back of the PWMU cookbook. Anyway, uh, but sometimes this recipe kind of thinking, you know, have this, have this, have this, put this in this way, mix it this way, then, then cook it, bang. This recipe kind of thinking, well, that can become part of the way we approach sharing our faith, the way in which we view sharing our faith. We think that only if we get the right ingredients and mix them in the right way, Therefore, out will pop a believer. You know, therefore, out will, will pop a Christian, a new Christian. If we, if we do the right things, if we host the right event, if we, we say the right words, if, we, if only we do the formula the right way, then Christians will, will come about, will be produced. And we often think this way when it, actually, when it comes to raising our children in the faith. Uh, and, and don't get me wrong here, we're instructed to, to teach our children the ways of the Lord. That's a key responsibility of being a, a Christian parent. Uh, however, I've seen it time and time again, whereby we as, as parents believe that if only we buy the right Christian books or we, we, buy the, or we give the right children's Bible to our kids or, or we send them to the right Sunday, Sunday school or we send them to the right youth group or, or we even enrol them at the right school. Like then, then out the other end, later on, maybe at the end of their teenage years or as they head into young adult, out, out will pop our kids in a, and they'll believe. They'll be, they'll be Christians. They'll be Christians of good standing and, and, and will be right. And don't get me wrong here, like hear me, hear me right. I'm not saying don't do these things. I'm not saying that these things are bad things. They're, they're good things and, and they may well help and we trust that they, they help. Oh, but there's no guarantee. It's not a, it's not a formula. It, but it, it can be an approach we take towards ministry, not just towards our kids, towards the way we to do our, our mission work or the way in which we... Do, do things here at church as well. That if we mix in all these ingredients, then, then out, the outcome will be uh, new believers or, or something like that. Well, in verses 7 to 12, Paul outlines his approach to ministry. And uh, I don't think it's very formulaic, but let, let's read through that and have a look. He says from verse 7, Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you. As a nurse nurtures her own children, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, 
but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labour and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We preach the gospel to you. You are witnesses and so is God of how devoutly, righteously and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And the key to notice, I think, here is just how relational Paul is in his ministry here to the Thessalonians, just how relational he is. Paul didn't want to be a burden to these believers. He didn't want to stand on his authority as, a, as an apostle. Instead, he was gentle and he was kind to them. And the maternal illustration we get here is, is a, a mother nursing her infant, nursing her baby, taking care of her baby and being concerned for their, their welfare, that their, for their needs. A mother doesn't ignore the cry of their child. Instead, she does what is appropriate to care and to feed them. Paul describes his ministry to the believers in such a way. And this relational practice is expressed explicitly in verse 8 as he reminds the church that he didn't just come to share the gospel, didn't just come to share the gospel, but he came to also share his life with them as well. He didn't just roll up to the city, pitch a big tent, have a meeting, got people gathering around, preach and then move on. No, he stayed as long as he could and he got to know people during the week and busily interacting with them, teaching them, encouraging them and instructing them as he went about his daily life. And that, I think, is what relational ministry is. We speak of relational ministry means that we're talking about a relationship. And this relationship includes sharing life together. Uh, We might often hear phrases such as community or doing, doing life together, Uh, as part of our vocab, uh, highlighting that relational aspect to our faith. And the practice of relational ministry for Paul worked itself out not just in uh, the explicit preaching uh, at the synagogue or, or in the marketplace, but it was also in his work. So he worked with his hands as a tent maker and would have done so here in Thessalonica as well. And in doing so, he will have numerous conversations with his colleagues and with his customers throughout the day and that provided for him also an income so that he was not to be a burden to others or maybe to put it crassly, he wasn't being a cheapskate on these new believers there. And perhaps this is why he highlights his conduct with the Thessalonians. If there's any question of his character or to his behaviour, Paul reminds the church that he walked in such a way to please God and to encourage them to do the same. Like a father, and this is the paternal illustration here, like a father he he taught and he guided and he encouraged 
his children. Uh, he, he taught, he guided and encouraged them like a father does with his children. And Paul's done that in the same way. This year our family took up Auskick and, uh, well, we got, we got, I think we got seven weeks in anyway. And, uh, and so our boys predominantly learnt the skills of footy there at Auskick uh, with, with uh, people their own age, you know, and, and that has now progressed into uh, footy in the front yard or on the street or at the local park. And in learning these new skills for them, uh, I've been there encouraging and teaching and guiding them how to kick, how to mark, how to handball the footy. And so Paul describes himself in a similar way, that he is there doing that kind of thing, encouraging, guiding and teaching these Thessalonians to walk worthy of God. So perhaps a question worth asking ourselves is how are we encouraging, how are we guiding How are we teaching others to walk worthy lives of God, to walk worthy of God? For in doing so, uh, we will be combining the sharing of our faith uh, with this relational emphasis that Paul has. And I think that is certainly a helpful practice to follow. And third, we see here that we have a word to welcome in verses 13 through 17. And have you, have you ever received a gift from uh, someone where you had to react more positively to the giver who was there right in front of you about for this gift that you have now received than probably you felt like doing? Uh, you know, if you can remember a time where someone's given you a gift and you've opened it and you've had to uh, perhaps show a bit more enthusiasm for the gift that you got. Uh, maybe it happened when you were a child and, and you've simply forgotten at this point. Or maybe you're just, you're just too kind. Uh, but you see, children can't help their reactions when they open gifts. And so when they receive gifts at Christmas or for their birthday straight away the giver knows whether the gift that they have given has hit the mark, straight away. And as Paul gives thanks here again for the Thessalonians, he does so because of the way in which they received a gift, the way in which they received the message of Christ that was preached to them, the word of God. Chapter 2, verse 13 to 16 says, This is why we constantly thank God, because, you, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. They displease God and are hostile to everyone by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. As a result, they are constantly filling up their sins to the limit and wrath has overtaken them at last. 
One of the unique characteristics of early New Testament preaching is how grounded it is in the Old Testament. Uh, as, we work our way, as you work your way through Acts, uh, we immediately find this. And in Acts 2, Peter preaches uh, with specific references to the Old Testament of, of Joel, the books of Joel, Isaiah and the Psalms. In uh, Acts chapter 8, we find Philip with an Ethiopian eunuch they're explaining a few verses of Isaiah to him and how it points to, the G- to Jesus, who is the Christ. And as Paul does in one of his sermons in Acts 13, uh, re- there are references to, to 1 Samuel, to the Psalms, to Isaiah and even to Habakkuk. As he pl- as, and these are places where Christ can be found and pointed to as the Messiah. And this shouldn't surprise us, uh, for Jesus himself explained to a couple of disciples uh, on the Emmaus Road that the Old Testament spoke and promised and pointed towards him. In Luke chapter 24, verse 25 to 27, Jesus is speaking to these disciples and he says, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And so Paul is thankful to these Thessalonians, uh, these these believers, because they have recognised that the message they have received was not uh, not a message that he made up, but it was a message of divine inspiration. It was a message founded on these Old Testament scriptures and it indeed was the word of God. And one of the keys to this word of, to the word of God is that it works effectively. I'm not sure of your experience in reading the word of God or listening to the word of God being preached, but there are times when it can be arresting Uh, where it can draw us in, where it can convict us and challenge us, where it can encourage us and fill us with hope and where it it can illuminate things for us and, and where it can even change us. Change us because it is the Word of God. And so as the Spirit works through the Word, we can be transformed, have our eyes opened, our hearts opened to the truth of God. Psalm 119 is a psalm all about the Word of God, all about God's precepts and laws and instructions and statutes. And in verse 100, uh, in chapter, 100, chapter 119, verse 18, uh, we read, "Open my heart, my eyes, so that I may contemplate wondrous things from your instruction." As we come to the Word of God, whether we're listening to it through our phone. Whether we're reading it there in paper before us, whether we're hearing it read, there is encouragement, or there is the encouragement to come to it and not just hear it or listen to it or read it, but to move to contemplate its truth. Like a tasty, delicious sweet, we want to taste all the flavours that are going on. And so to the Word of God, has numerous flavours going on and can be heard and contemplated 
and then really it can work effectively on our hearts and in our lives. As 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 to 17 reminds us, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training and for, and for training in righteousness. So that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So I'd encourage you uh, to pray this week that you might be open to receive the word of God as the word of God. May your hearts be open to hearing the wor- what the word of God says and that you may be able to welcome it, to welcome the word of God and allow it to make an impact in your life this week. To close out, Paul encourages us or encourages the church by telling them that they are going through what many of the other churches in uh, Judea have been going through and are still going through. That is, they're being persecuted uh, in turning away from Judaism and to turn to this new way, Christianity. They're being persecuted because of that. And because of Paul's zeal prior to his conversion uh, in Acts 9, he understands more than anyone else the opposition and the the violence that comes along with that that these churches are facing. Also through his experience, of course. Uh, But he also recognises how wrong it is, how, how, how wrong it is in stopping the message of Christ go out towards and to the Gentiles. Like we saw last week, he closes again Uh, in this section, talking of the wrath of God, that this time it will come upon these specific persecutors. And perhaps that leads us full circle this morning. Uh, For these persecutors do not have motives that please God, uh, nor do they practice or do they have a practice that seeks relationship, and nor do they welcome the word of God as the word of God. Yet for us this morning, may we be a people who have motives that please God, a practice of ministry that is relational and are people who welcome the word of God as the word of God. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the words written here by Paul which are the word of God to us. And Lord, as we understand that uh, your word has been divinely inspired, that we can come to it and that we can understand more of what it means to be motivated to please you, understand what it is uh, to to conduct your mission in this world, to be part of what you are doing in this world. And Lord, may we we understand your your word uh, more fully so that our hearts and our, our minds might be open to the transforming work of your spirit through it. Lord, we thank you once again and we we look forward to hearing from you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.